Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with the Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 77. Thanks so much for joining me uh, as everybody's coming in online. Uh, before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been a continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do all this because we love poetry. I know you love poetry because you're here. And since you love poetry and you're here, please click the like button. Share this. Make sure you're subscribed. There's about four places or five places to watch this live. Wherever you're doing that, click something. Um, if you're watching after the fact, click something there. It uh, doesn't matter what you do. Just, just spread it around so that we can all appreciate poetry. Now, for the first uh, 76 episodes, we've had a, um, a warm-up poem. But I think maybe we'll stop doing that because... Um, the whole point was to get everybody situated around the computer, but people are uh, sort of, you're all trained, so everybody shows up live right at the right time. And I think we'll just stick to um, the open lines later. We have a, a whole hour of open lines after we talk to uh, the guest every week, and we'll, we'll do other poems then. And um, um, also, I wanted to say that we're going to switch the open lines to, um, I should say that we're going to switch the open mic. We're going to start calling it open lines, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about why during the show. But I've been thinking about this for a while, and, and we're going to call it Open Lines. Let a little bit more in as well. Uh, but today's guest, we're really excited to uh, talk to Dana Joya. Um, Dana is just one of my favorite um, like patrons of poetry. He's been, one of the first essays I ever read was Can Poetry Matter? Um, back when I was an undergraduate, um, not really interested in poetry at the University of Rochester. And we read this, this uh, essay. And um, I've, it's, it's shaped my thinking about poetry ever since for the last 25 years or however long that's been. And um, Dana Joey is also um, former chairman of the NEA. He's a um, uh, former poet laureate of California. His most recent book, I'll put it on screen here, is uh, 99 Poems, New and Selected. And um, he also had this wonderful essay that he sent, Poetry is Enchantment, which we'll talk about a lot as well. And um, I'm just really excited for this interview. So let's get started. Here is with us Dana Joy. Hello, Dana. How are you doing tonight? I'm delighted to be here. Yeah. Um, do you want to start us out with a poem? Since uh, there's no warm-up poem, let's kick it out with your warm-up poem. Yeah. I, um, I'm, going to, I'm going to recite a poem without showing it on the screen, just so people can hear it. This is a, sh a short poem. Um, it's called Pity the Beautiful. Pity the beautiful, the dolls and the dishes, the babes with big daddies, granting their wishes. Pity the pretty boys, the hunks and Apollos, the golden lads whom success always follows, the hotties, the knockouts, the tens out of ten, the drop-dead gorgeous, the great leading men. Pity the faded, the brow bloated, the blousy, the paunchy Adonis, whose luck's gone lousy. Pity the gods, no longer divine. Pity the night, the stars lose their shine. Now, I just wanted to recite that poem without any warm-up, without any explanation, just uh, so it could be experienced um, as sound, as a, as a stream of speech. Now, if you want to, you know, put it up in case somebody missed something. I think I, you know, paused at one point, you know, between uh, 
the things, you know, the, mm-hmm. and, um, the, you know, but just so we can see it. And, and the reason I, I did it that way is that I, I think you experience a poem differently when you hear it rather than when uh, you read it. I also think even though the, the reciter risks making a mistake, you hear a poem differently when somebody's reciting it rather than reading it. I mean, I can tell when somebody's reading a text versus speaking to me. And these things are all, um, I believe, either hardwired into us or so uh, that are learned so early in our speech development, our hearing development, that they're part of our general psychic um, makeup. And in recent years, I've really come to the conclusion that speech is a branch of song, and it grows out of of oral performance. It grows out of musical rhythm, and m- much of what a poem communicates to you is is not the con- the rational content, but it's other things that you experience in in terms of when it's performed. Yeah, let's talk. Um, it's a perfect segue to the, the main topic that I want to talk about the most, because I just love this poetry is enchantment um, um, essay that you wrote. But um, let me say before we do that, though, that, that for the show, we're going to be um, not showing any of the poems on screen. So people okay. um, can just listen to hear and enjoy and see how that goes. And let me know in the chat how you feel about hearing only. But that's always the thing that really fascinates me, um, is that... Um, the history of poetry and what it really means um, going back, which is what um, poetry as enchantment is really about. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, about um, how yeah. far back poetry goes as a human universal, as you call it? And um, yeah, well, you know, it's, it's odd. I mean, I, you and I were, I presume, trained in literature, trained in poetry to a certain degree at various institutions by various teachers. I believe the way poetry is taught, the way poetry has been institutionalized, uh, disregards its ancient origins. Poetry is probably the most ancient art that human beings still practice. It goes back not to a time in ancient history, but before history, when people could only make art with their own bodies. And there was an art then, uh, which is... Uh, subsequently split into three different arts, poetry, singing, and dancing. But what there was was a kind of rhythmic movement of the body and chanting of language. And poetry was and is a special kind of language. It's a special kind of language that's spoken or the special kind of writing that rewards and requires a special sort of listening. And so you you take speech, because uh, writing didn't exist, language was simply speech, and you find a way of making it artificial. I mean, this, let's just call, you know, let's be frank about it. You find some way of, of adding artistry to it, artificiality to it, so that the people hear it immediately not as ordinary speech, but as a special kind of speech. Now, originally, uh, it seems, and we know this from anthropology, we know it from as far back as written history goes, it was associated with religious rite, with magic, uh, with ritual. And people would, in a sense, dance and recite these poems. Now, uh, luckily, uh, modern 
anthropology came with their cameras and their recording equipment early enough in the 20th century where we could capture this before global culture took over everything. But among uh, the Maori, among American Indian tribes, you see these things being performed. And there's the very famous story of the Harvard of the Homer scholars that ended up in Yugoslavia, you know, uh, discovering that there were still oral bards that recited epic poems, quasi improvised. And so I think of this, that poetry as a almost unbroken continuity to our earliest human origins. And no matter how uh, far the professors of Yale and Harvard take it from its origins, it always reasserts itself. I mean, the most interesting thing that's happened in American poetry during my lifetime was the fact that when I was at Harvard, it was assumed that poetry would never be popular. You would never hear formal poetry again. There was a dead historical style that African-Americans, uh, you know, were going to be cut off, you know, from these Anglo-Saxon things such as form, um, and that the future of poetry was the perpetual avant-garde. Poetry would become ever more difficult and uh, really the domain of only the highly educated and cultured people. Meanwhile, there was a guy named Cool Herc in the South Bronx mixing records, and he began to rap over it. And 10 years later, uh, you had the most popular type of recorded sound in the world from Finland to the South Bronx was hip hop, was rap, which is fundamentally oral poetry, performed poetry, uh, poetry that's quasi improvised. In an early anthology, I maybe have been the first um, quasi academic, I wasn't teaching, but it was an academic anthology to reprint a hip hop lyric. And I wrote the artist and I asked if they could reprint it. And they said, oh, great. Uh, and they said, we want to see a copy because we've never seen it written down. And and that I loved that. I loved knowing that Run DMC, who was this huge, you know, I think maybe forgotten now, but they were huge then. Basically, you know, they performed it. You know, they and they had, uh, you know, they didn't have a written text uh, which they read. I can go on, Tim. I'm giving you a break to, to actually say, stop, no. Dana, stop before no, it's too I, late. I was just sort of in, enthralled in, in what you were saying, because this is the subject that I find the most interesting of, of sort of all the topics and why I got into poetry in the first place. Um, I, I think that it even goes, you know, you mentioned it as being the first art, but I think it's even more than that, because I think, you know, you mentioned it's the, the maybe the only human universal or um, and. Um, you know, because every culture across the world, um, going back in time that we can find evidence for, has used poetry and has an oral tradition. And I, I think that it, um, it, it had a lot to do with the actual evolution of the human brain, I would say. Um, I think that, that, you know, there's a reason why something becomes um, predominant everywhere. It's because it works, because it has a fitness value. Yeah. And so, um, so if a tribe had poetry that allowed them to survive as opposed to a tribe that didn't. And maybe what wiped out the Neanderthals was uh, poetry. We, we had the, um, the Fox P2 gene is uh, over 100,000 years old, which was the grammar gene, so that you can tell that we had language that far back. And then the culture explosion was like 60,000 years ago. And then the um, Neanderthals disappeared after that. And there's something about the way that it, it creates meaning that, um, 
that, that help the brain evolve, I think. And so, so I think poetry is a part of what we are as human beings. I think it's more than just art. It's, it's what humanity is in a, in a way, which is why it fascinates me. Well, no, it is. I mean, a lot of what you're talking about, I agree with, although I think it's unprovable. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, yeah. The, uh, uh, I think you, you've published Frederick Turner, ha- have you? I think so. The yeah, name is yeah, Frederick, Frederick Turner, 30 years ago, did research with German uh, neuroscientists about meter. And it was interesting because it was, it was really at the high point of deconstructionism and postmodernism. And what, what postmodernism fundamentally says is that there are no human universals, that the things that we think of as beautiful, the things that we think of as of norms, cultural norms, uh, the the techniques, the conventions of every art form are socially determined. So if you if you did that, you say, well, okay, take all the cultures in the world and take the predominant metrical line in their oral poetry. When they start when they start getting going around the fire, you know, what do they use? You'd expect a random curve. But what you see is something like boop. I mean, it's the steepest curve you've ever seen. It's not really a curve, it's a spike. And and you say, well, why are they all three point, between 3.4 and 3.6 seconds? Well, that's the unit by which the brain processes language. The, the, those metrical forms, which ignored the brain, didn't survive. People don't, didn't remember them. They didn't move people. Um, and, and they go on uh, to speculate, and they do this based on bird you know, uh, biology. Birds which have longer songs have more mates. And that that and Frederick Turner believes that poetry was one of the ways in which the human race designed their own evolution. In a sense, they uh, by by uh, natural selection and by artistry, they uh, developed the human brain. There was a guy that died yesterday, who's proved empirically. Now, you nobody will believe this. I know no one will believe this that human beings are getting smarter. The average IQ is going up. Now, obviously, this is probably a bad period in American history to, to, spe- to say that, but it's it's empirically demonstrable. That to a certain degree, humanity is co-evolving uh, and planning its co-evolution. But anyway, what I believe, and I think what you're saying is that poetry responds to something hardwired in our brain. Those things which which work, work for a reason. There's a reason why storytelling is important. And the whole postmodern phenomenon is to, in a weird way, this denial of, uh, na- of nature, a denial of those things which uh, seem to be not only perennial, but actually uh, inherent in our, our psyches. Because my artistic aesthetic is empirical. I like to do what works. I don't like to do what doesn't work. And it does seem to me that uh, much of what works has been ignored in poetry. But the reassuring thing is that this whole revival of poetry that's happened in the last 30 years, at that point, about which time I published Can Poetry Matter, when it was a given that poetry was a dying art uh, and these things like this. And I speculated that maybe if we did things a little differently, we'd see a renaissance. And today and this is this is not my opinion this is uh this is data poetry is the fastest growing art in the united states Hmm. Uh, the audience for poetry 
among younger people, 18 to 25, and pretty much 26 uh, to, to 31 has doubled in the last 10 years. Every group of Americans are reading more poetry than they did 10 and 20 years ago. So now why would that uh, happen? I think it's because there's been a populist revival. Those, the major trends in American poetry that have happened over the last 30 years have happened outside writing departments. Mm -hmm. Now, that, now I'm not saying that writing programs are worthless or anything else, but I do think academia has kind of backed itself into a corner. It's locked into a kind of aging historical model, a kind of late modernist, postmodernist model that no really longer has much to do with what's happening in the culture or what people actually respond to. And, you know, so you have everything from uh, hip hop to cowboy poetry, to new formalism, to slam poetry, to performance poetry, uh, to radio shows on poetry. I think poetry on the radio could, is a much uh, more powerful medium than people recognize. Sound is the native environment of the poem. They exist on pages too, but I think it's almost a secondary medium versus the performative medium. Now, one of the things I like about, about sound, I'll say one more thing, mm -hmm. is when, about six, seven years ago, I was invited to give a reading at Cornell University, wonderful place. Uh, I uh, was able to see Nabokov's office. Uh, I was able to see Archie A.R. Ammon's office, which has been turned into a little kind of like reading, you know, reading room, a little office that nobody inhabits full of books. And... I had a huge audience. I mean, I didn't expect this, such big audience at Cornell. And people had bought my book and they assigned it in classes. And when I looked out uh, at the audience while I was reading, this is what I saw. You know, I don't know if I mean, that's coming across. <laughs> and they see the book, you know, mm -hmm. and people were, uh, were reading uh, my, they were following my book my poems line by line as I read them. I felt that was a mistake. And I'll tell you why. It would have been great if they, I just had been quiet. I said, okay, now everybody turn to page 64 and read that poem. Okay, how did that, was that okay? Okay, let's go to page 73. I think the reading experience would be fine. Or if they just listened. But I think when they mix the media, they don't, they aren't really inhabiting the sight and they aren't inhabiting the sound. What I like about sight is you fix the text. It's the best possible version of the text. Maybe when I recite it, I'll misalign. You know, that happens. What I like about sound is that it's inside you. When I read a poem on the page, it's outside me. But when I hear a poem, it's inside me. And so I think it has in a different emotional posture, a different uh, intuitive posture, a different physical posture than the poem on the page. I'll shut up now, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting because I actually, I've always thought kind of the opposite is that a poem on the page, um, when you read it, you're sub-vocalizing and so you're sort of inhabiting the poem and your breath is becoming metered. Um, you know, not not listening along, I'm talking about, but um, as opposed to hearing it feels more passive to me, which is interesting. Um contrast. There's so much I want to talk about, but um, if we don't share a lot of poems, people are going to get upset. So let's do a couple more poems and we'll, we'll put a pin there in that conversation. And, uh, and Okay, well uh, this is, uh, um, let me, shall I read the poem that I, that uh, you published? Um, this, yeah, that'd be great. We, do that. This is yeah. a longish yeah. poem. Now it's, 
it's in uh, it's not in meter. It's it's but it's in what T. S. Eliot would call a ghost of a meter. Uh, you know, which is to say, there's a there's the echo of blank verse behind it. It's in it's a poem about Los Angeles. And we should we should talk about Los Angeles, which I, I think you've disowned. Uh, you know, <laughs> well but the that's thing okay. is, I, you know, I'm from uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm from it. I'm from Western New York, and I don't really I never I always felt like I didn't fit in Los Angeles, and I got as far away as I could while staying within Los Angeles area. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's okay. I'm just teasing you. Uh, but I'm a native Angelino, and I was raised in in Hawthorne, kind of a crummy neighborhood in 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 LA, and I love LA. And L.A. drives me crazy. I think that's the, you know, the only sane response you have is that, you know, is a completely divided thing. So I've I wrote, written three poems about L.A., uh, one of them very critical, one of them kind of in between. And this is a poem in praise of Los Angeles. And I'd, I'd wanted to write it for years and years, but I couldn't find the right way of praising Los Angeles. And then s- several years ago, I was actually uh, – I needed a place to stay. I was teaching at USC. I didn't have a place to stay. And so I moved in with this composer, Morton Lauritsen, who had a little storybook cottage in the Hollywood Hills. And, and this poem all takes place as if you're in the Hollywood Hills at night and you're looking at Los Angeles, which has now simply become all of the traffic and all of the street lights. If you think of, of standing by the Hollywood sign, that's more or less where I was standing. And it's in three parts first. And, so, and once again, it all takes place in the mind of a single person from a single perspective looking at Los Angeles. Psalm of the Heights. You don't fall in love with Los Angeles until you've seen it from a distance after dark. Up in the heights of the Hollywood Hills, you can mute the sounds and find perspective The pulsing anger of the traffic dissipates, and our swank, unmanageable metropolis dissolves with all its signage and its sewage until only the radiance remains. That's when the city of angels appears, silent and weightless as a dancer's dream. The boulevards unfold in brilliant lines. The freeways flow like shining rivers. The moving lights stretch into vast and secret shapes, invisible at street level. At the horizon, the city rises into sky, our demi-galaxy brighter than the Zodiac. Part two. Surely our destinies are written in this Zodiac, whose courses and conjunctions govern us, look down and name our starry constellations, Wilshire, Olympic, Santa Monica, In speeding comets or sleek thunderbirds, we traveled the twelve houses of the heavens, ascending Crenshaw, Sunset, or Imperial, locked in our private worlds of lust or laughter. Who will cast the charts of our radiant sorrow, or trace the secret transits of our joy? The traffic shimmers in its fixed trajectories, dense and indifferent as nebulae. Though you resist its gaudy spectacle, you can't escape 
the city's sortilege. Three. Move away, if you wish, to the white Sierras, or huddle in the smoky canyons of Manhattan. You'll miss the juvenescent rapture of L.A., where ecstasy cohabits with despair, lascivious and fitful as a pair of lovers. Let someone else play grown-up. Here the soul sings like a car radio, and no one asks your age, because we're all immortal. Inhale the spices in the midnight air, drifting from Thai town and little Armenia. Here on the hilltop, the city whispers to you, come down and play in the traffic. Merge into the moving lights, our myriad, the luminous multitudes that surround you. Join their fiery orbit. Shine with us tonight. Where else can you become a star? And that was Dana Joy reading some of the heights from uh, the current issue of Rattle number 70. Um, and that was the one poem we'll show on the screen. So you can compare that to um, what everybody, you know, the experience of that to just out loud alone. It'll be interesting. And, and I'm curious to hear your feedback about the difference. It is, um, it, it takes me back, like just listening to um, where I fell in love with poetry, which was like, I, I mentioned um, reading Can Poetry Matter. I was at the University of Rochester and I would go when the poets came and I would literally kind of like half sleep in the back of the library listening you know, and um, that, that's where I fell in love with poetry was just hearing it like that. So we'll see as the show progresses how everybody feels about that. But um, let's talk a little bit about place, because um, it feels like you um, I never thought of you sort of as a poet of place um, until um, kind of recently um, you started writing more. It seems about California and maybe since you became poet laureate of California, did that have anything to do with them? Um, well, a little, a little bit, I think, you know, being. See, I think this is an interesting ar argument or an interesting, I mean, I think of not an argue, you and I arguing, but, an, you know, intellectual construction, which is that uh, most people in the United States nowadays are not from anywhere. You know, we move around. You know, I was born in Los Angeles. I went, uh, lived in Palo Alto. I went to Boston, came back to, you know, Palo Alto. I went to New York. I came, you know, to Sonoma County, California. Uh, you know, then I went to Washington, D.C. And, you know, and at every junction, then I came back to California. So I, but when you are from, a, you know, and so I think you look at yourself. There's, no, there's two kinds of imaginations. You know, one is I'm placeless and the placelessness is, is my identity. You know, I move around, I'm a citizen of the world, I'm cosmopolitan, to use the Greek's word. You know, the, your city is the cosmos. Um, but then there's also people like me who are fundamentally peasants. You know, you know, I'm from a place. The place I'm from is L.A. I'm from a Latin L.A. One part of my family is Mexican, one part of my family is Italian, as with all my relatives. Uh, and I'm in L.A., Right now, at the moment, in, in it's January, and it's great. It's natural January weather. It's sixty degrees. It's sunny. You know, that's what January should be. I mean, Rochester is an aberration to my mind. Well, well maybe not. Maybe for you, but it is twenty-six <laughs> degrees outside where I am up above your head. So I know you're just up up in the mountains here. But you know, but you but you start to you know the plants, the weather, the people. 
I mean, I'm used to hearing Spanish, you know, all the time. I'm used to, you know, this kind of babble of, of voices. I mean, living in Pasadena means to hear Chinese all the time. I mean, it's, and, and so I have this kind of California sensibility. That being said, I am also a citizen of the world, a cosmopolitan. Uh, and, you know, I, and I, my sense of poetry is very European, but I, I do think it, it, it helps for some poets to believe as it were, to know that life actually happens in a real place, in real time. Life isn't generic. Physical experience isn't generic. It comes out of your physical existence in a real place. Now, that can be a physical existence full of discontinuity. In my case, it's I go other places, I come back. I go other places, I come back. You know, like a bad check, as my parents would say. Uh, and so... Uh, I uh, recognize, and I don't think I recognize this fully. And I didn't never wrote about California until I moved away, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and and suddenly I began to see, because I was living, I lived in New York for twenty years. I began to see that there that how different experience is depending on where you're having it. And so, I believe, and some you know may differ, is that Los Angeles is one of the great cities of the world. It's actually on the very cutting edge of culture. It's been that way for, you know, probably the better part of a century as, as we moved into, to movies, to television, to pop music. And, and, you know, the, as it were that, that, that where high art and popular art, you know, change. And so there are people like Ray Bradbury, Raymond Chandler could only have happened in Los Angeles because that's where these these the edges between high culture and popular culture blurred, and so, you know, and I think that that's true in my poetry. I mean, I was told that no self-respecting intellectual poet could write a ballad. I mean, that's just that was infra dignitatem, um, beneath your dignity, as they would say at Oxford, and but it was I liked it. I was around people. I was around people that didn't. See, here's why I wrote Can Poetry Matter. Because I was around people that didn't go to college, and they liked poetry. They would recite poems. You know, I would come in, you know, my mother would come in and say, it was many and many a year ago in a kingdom by the sea. And she just knew all these poems by heart. So when I heard that poetry was not popular, people didn't like poetry, it never made sense to me. And so I was much more interested in why do these people think that other people don't like poetry? Well, part of it is they think they're so much smarter than the other people. And part of it is these people, these people don't like the poetry that these people like. And so, you know, and so, you know, I had to kind of reconcile that and can poetry matter was one of the reconciliations. Now we've been talking about this essay, you know, poetry as enchantment. I think it'll come up backwards on the screen if I show it, but it was a, this was an, this was an, uh, a lecture I gave in Beijing. I was asked to give the keynote lecture in this gigantic thing in Beijing. I'd never been to China before. And so I said, well, let me talk about, fundamental issues is what is poetry because i realized two things i had a very good literary education at stanford and harvard but when i left that i could not have answered two questions even i wanted to be a poet but i couldn't have answered these two questions when i left my you know my graduate study one what is poetry and two why does humanity need poetry nobody had ever talked about the human purposes of poetry and so suddenly 
I got a day job. I'm working 10 hours a day. I'm writing by myself at night. I'm, I, I'm drawn to poetry. You know how you can be drawn to another person. You can fall in love with somebody, but you don't understand them. You don't know what you're doing with them, perhaps even. Uh, and I was drawn to poetry, and I'm trying to write. I'm trying to write better and better. And I had to figure out, well, what is poetry? What is not a poem, and what is a poem? And why the hell would anybody need this poem? And so that's what I ultimately wrote about poetry is enchantment. I was trying to, to answer those questions, which is – and one of the things that was key to me was to go back and read anthropology and to read anci- the ancient historical accounts, mostly in China and in Greece and in Rome, uh, about poetry. And one of the things I liked was that the Latin word for poetry is Carmen, like the name Carmen. But Carmen meant four things. Carmen meant a poem, a song, a magic spell, and a prophecy. And I said, "That's it," you know. Uh, and that, you know, and I'd always felt that poetry and song were the same art, two sides of the same art. And suddenly, you understand is that what a poem is is an enchantment, a magic spell that brings the audience into a kind of attention and a kind of openness they don't allow themselves to have in ordinary life. And in that moment of enchantment, a transaction can happen, you can say between the poet and the audience, because that's what was true in oral culture. The the poet was right in front of you, but you can say between the poem and the audience, a kind of transaction that would not happen elsewhere. And I mean, it's sort of the way about if you walk into a great church like Chartres Cathedral or the cathedral at Cologne, you can imagine in the Middle Ages somebody coming in there and they come into a sacred space and they understand something can happen here that doesn't happen outside the door. That's what a, how a poem operates. And so, you know, I, in my own poetry, have tried to, in, to understand and appreciate those enchantments. What are they? Well, we all know them because they're encoded in our culture. They're hardwired in our brain. And we should write with them rather than against them. Hmm. Yeah, Meter, I, rhyme, storytelling, yeah, um, you know, kind of dramatic, you know, d- dramatic voices, you know, things like this. Yeah, the, the question of use in poetry, like what is the use of poetry? Something that's always been fascinating. And I've asked a lot of poets um, uh, in interviews about it um, over these, mostly the print interviews. And I kind of dropped away from even asking that question because I get the sense people don't even like to think about it, which is a very strange thing to me um but but i i feel like um the the situation with poetry is that it, i think it originally had many uses and this is sort of my model for what's going on with poetry in the world I, I just i'm curious what you think about this so i think that originally because we had no technology and poetry was like the original technology or one of a few we had like hand axes and poetry um so it had many uses it had storytelling it had memory it was a mnemonic device in a lot of ways so we developed all these rhyme and meter and it was a meaning making exercise where we learned how to make meaning of our lives and and made our lives more fulfilled and cohesive and um and i feel like what's gone on is that starting with the printing press and then um television and the internet is things have taken away those um other meanings of poetry or other uses of poetry and what's left is the meaning use and so, um, so it feels to me like the reason why poetry is expanding now is because there's sort of a meaning, meaning crisis going on. 
Um, and so it, it sort of faded away. I don't, I don't blame it as much on the um, um, academics and, and the criticism, tr- new criticism tradition. I think they were sort of filling a niche, you know, as poetry sort of lost its, its purpose, um, as technology was replacing those uses for it. Um, and literacy was increasing, so people could just read prose and didn't have to memorize as much. Um, I think criticism maybe filled in the gaps there. And, uh, and so what we're left is kind of a, a poetry where, you know, because in the Greek originally, poetry means, you know, in the Latin it was, it was Carmen, but in, in uh, the Greek it was poesia, which was uh, to make, it was a, a creation, was the idea of that. And to me, that, that feels like the fundamental thing. I think a poet makes like a vessel for like an emotion or a thought or an idea. Um, and, and I think that's why it has value still now. Like, what do you think of that? Just well, I actually agree with pretty much everything you said. Uh, I would qualify this as I don't blame academics. Mm-hmm. What my criticism is that what they're offering is not the solution now. Yeah, it was yeah. probably a very good solution in 1940, but you know, in 2020, th- th- they're not coming up with the solutions. You know, and they do valuable, wonderful things, and God bless them, everyone. Um, but I think I, what I would do is I'd take exactly what you said, and I I would. Sh- uh, you know, I would change it a little differently. What poetry is, is a language. It's a language in which you can say anything and everything uh, if you make it interesting enough. Now, what's happened over time is that if you go back to preliterate culture, if you wanted to remember anything, you damn well better put it in a poem because there was nowhere else to put it. I mean, I guess you could paint you know, painted on a on a cave, you know, but that was probably a fairly limited, you know, it's like, you know, the Sunday comics, you know, versus an Anna Karenina. And so, and, and these cultures are, I mean, think of, I mean, the Homeric epics are preliterate poems. The, the sophistication of the poetic medium was extraordinary before writing. And as soon as writing came in, suddenly, well, you know, history, rhetoric, science, that mostly ended up in prose because it was a better medium. And so the the uses of poetry, you can still do everything. I mean, there, you know, A.E. Hausman spent his academic career editing an extraordinarily boring Roman poet who, uh, who's, he says his main gift was to do complicated mathematic formulas in meter. He was a, a, a mathematician, astronomer, poet. And so even in the Romans, they were still doing science in verse. Um, and uh, But the uses of poetry became more specialized. If you go to the Romans, you know, what they're saying is that the purpose of poetry is to delight, instruct, uh, console, commemorate. You know, those are that's Horace plus a little bit of you know other Romans, and I think that's probably pretty much. If you look at most of the poems that you see in a magazine today, delight, instruct, console, commemorate. You know, it it sort of covers them. Now, the the question for you know for in culture is what what can you do better than anybody else? In, you know, 1960, they said radio was dead. Radio was dead, never to come back. In, by 1980, people were listening to more radio than they did in the golden age of radio. Why? Because radio found what it could do better than anybody else. Talk and music and maybe local news. But, you know, it's talk and music. Uh, and so the question is, what can poetry do better than other media? Suddenly, the no- poet said, well, we don't want to do short stories anymore. So the novel took that away. Movies took it away. TV took it away. And then you sort of say, well, see, I believe in there's a kind of a wisdom of the people. If everybody's doing something, there's probably a reason, even if I don't understand it. And 
So suddenly, in the last 20 years, poetry has gone from declining to growing. What's going on? And I think it's people are realizing that it has uses they didn't uh, appreciate before. And I think part of it is what you're talking about, the media saturation and everything else. But I also think it's because everything is owned. You know, most speech is commercial speech. Most shows are commercial shows. I mean, fairy tale care. The images by which we have fairy tale characters are owned by Disney or by Warner Brothers or by, you know, uh, DreamWorks or whatever. And so the why do people like poetry right now? Because it's cheap and it doesn't make any money. So you, we've we got an art form and Disney can't make a buck out of it. So they stay out. And so, you know, I mean, and I think that's really true. I think the people have come to it because if a poet is there reading a poem, you know, they're not doing it for the money. Now, they may be good. They may not be not so good, but they're doing it out of some kind of love, some kind of, of need for self uh, articulation. And people can walk into it. And even if it's a boring space, it's a pure space or at least pure of everything except the poet's enormous ego. Uh, and so and so I think what, we, what we've seen is the creation of a barter culture uh, for an art form that has no commercial use. And so poetry's very marginalization is what is, is, what is uh, one of the reasons for it. The second reason, I think, is that our culture is moving away from the printed page, and most information now is through speech and images not through uh you know through written you know written information i mean if 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 something doesn't work in the house my wife doesn't look for the instruction book what she do she goes on youtube you know and and the person talk you know and the the person talks to her and so so the curious thing is our culture is more like shakespeare's culture than it was ezra pound's culture you know shakespeare you know, he didn't bother to write his uh, plays down because they existed in performance. And, and and that's one of the reasons that, I mean, my own work, I'm trying to take off the page as much as possible because I think that's the kind of vitality. Yeah, that here. was, yeah, yeah. That was now a I'm going to read another, I'm going to read another poem here. Yeah, that's what I was just going to ask you to do. So perfect. Go ahead. I don't know if you've read this. Um, have you, did you see the Ballad of Jesus Ortiz? No, I've never seen that. Okay. This is a pre, a, a book. Let me show you this. Can you? That is the only photograph that exists of my great grandfather, my great great grandfather, Jesus Ortiz. Um, he looks kind of fancy because it's his wedding photo. It was all rotted away except for his face, and you know we got that. He was a, a vaquero, a cowboy, uh, and this is the real story of his life and his death. Everything in it is true. Every name is true. Uh, every place is true. And I want for years I wanted to tell this story because I knew that he had been killed in a barroom gun fight in a town, and I'm not making the town's name up, called Lost Cabin, Wyoming. Uh, and that he was killed. And I finally, through a long story, which I won't tell, came in possession of a bunch of documents, court records, uh, newspaper clippings of it. And I then I knew, but I said, how do I tell this? How do I tell it in a way that the people that were in the thing would have liked? And so I wrote a ballad and I said, oh God, I've written a cowboy ballad. How, you know, nobody wants a cowboy ballad. It's just, you know, it, uh, and so I didn't, I didn't publish it. And then my BBC 
I was doing a show with the BBC and my producer saw that. And he says, I love this poem. He says, let's put it on the radio. And we did. And it's long story, huge, huge success. The ballad of Jesus Ortiz, everything is true. Jake's family were vaqueros. They worked the cattle drives down from Montana to market. They did what it take, took to survive. Jake's real name was Jesus, which the Anglos found hard to take. So after a couple of days, the cowboys called him Jake. When Jake was 12, his father brought him along to ride. Don't waste your youth in the pueblo. Earn by your father's side. The days were hot and toilsome, but all the crew got fed. It wasn't hard to sleep on the ground when you'd never had a bed. Three thousand head of cattle grazing the prairie grass. Three thousand head of cattle pushed through each mountain pass. Three thousand head of cattle uh, fording the muddy streams. And then three thousand phantoms bellowing in your dreams. At night, when the coyotes called, Jake would sometimes weep, recalling how his mother would sing her children to sleep. But when he rose in the morning, the desert air was sweet. No sitting in a mission school with bare and dusty feet. And when the drive was over, he got his pay, and then he came back to the Pueblo, where he was one of the men. Ten years on the open range, he led the vaquero's life, far from his home in Sonora, no children and no wife. Then Jake headed north to Wyoming to find his winter keep among the Basques and Anglos who raised and slaughtered sheep. He came to, to cold, lost cabin where the rattlesnake mountains rise over the empty foothills, under the rainless skies. The herders lived in dugouts or shacks of pine and tar. The town had seven buildings. The biggest was the bar. John Oakey owned the town, the sheep king of Wyoming. He owned the herds. He owned the land and every wild thing roaming. He hired Jake for his tavern. He let him sleep in the kitchen. Mexicans worked hard and didn't waste time bitching. Tending bar was easier than tending cattle drives. Jake poured the drinks while the men complained about their lives. Jake never asked them questions. He knew what he needed to know. Men working in the lost cabin had nowhere else to go. Jake married a sheep herder's daughter, half Indian, half white. They had two sons, and finally, things in their life were right. He told his boys his adventures as a cowboy riding the plain. Papa, they cried, will you take us when you ride out again? One night he had an argument with a herder named Bill Howard, a deserter from the border war, a drunkard and a coward. Bring over that bottle of whiskey. If you don't grab it, I will. Oki said to cut you off until you pay your bill. 
Bill Howard slammed his fist down. Is this some goddamn joke? A piss-poor Mexican peon telling me I'm broke? A little after midnight, Bill came back through the door. Three times, he shot his rifle. And Jake fell to the floor. Then Bill beheld his triumph as the smoke cleared from the air, a mirror blown into splinters and blood splattered everywhere. A sudden, brutal outburst no motive could explain. One poor man killing another without glory, without gain. The tales of Western heroes show duels in the noonday sun. But darkness and deception is how most killings done. Father Keller came from Lander to lay Jake in the ground. A posse searched the mountains until Bill Howard was found. There were two more graves in Wyoming when the clover bloomed in the spring. Two strangers wandered into town and filled the openings, and two tall boys departed for the cattle drives that May with hardly a word to their mother, who watched them right away. That was wonderful. That was The Ballad of Jesus Ortiz, and you can find it in uh, the Los Angeles Review of Books if you Google that. Um, and, um, yeah, that was just wonderful. And the thing, uh, you know, I think of these rattlecasts as sort of everybody sitting around a fire. That's why I love talking about the, the old oral tradition, because it's kind of what we do every Tuesday night is sit around and share stories in this way. And um, that was just such a perfect uh, story to share in this format. And you can see how the, the oral storytelling works through the meter and rhyme in that way. Um, well, you know, the, one of the little boys that's writing off is my grandfather, my grandfather, Frank Ortiz. He, you know, he stopped going to school at 10. But he knew poems. He recited poems. He loved poems. Why? Because the cowboys would sit around the fire. They'd sing songs. Uh, they'd recite poems. They'd tell stories. You know, he was educated on the plains in the oral tradition. Yeah, and, there, and there's so much pleasure just in the music of language on its own, you know, like you, even if you, uh, sometimes we have um, poets that, that's, you know, read poems in other languages that they've translated and just hearing the, the sort of the spell, even if you don't know what the words mean, still means something. It still feels good just to hear the mouth and the sound shaped in that way. So it's just, I, I just, that's what I love about poetry. So um, thanks so much for, for sharing that. Um, I, I, I haven't said yet, but if anybody has any questions for Dana Joya, um, leave them in the chat windows on YouTube or um, uh, Facebook. I'm looking at those two areas um, and I'll pass them along. Um, uh, to keep going with the, the sort of state of poetry um, topic, um, I was looking back at the Can Poetry Matter essay, which is now 30 years old. And I was thinking about like, because you... That's right, end, it is 30 years old. This it year, is, it is, yeah. Um, and so you end it with some um, suggestions for how to how to move for you know, bring poetry back into the center of American life. Or, um, and, and I was thinking about how a few of them have happened and a few of them haven't. So you, you emphasize a lot the spoken word. And, um, and so through the NEA, you um, had Poetry Out Loud is something you started where, where students read poetry in a competition, which is a great thing. And, and you talk about it in the... Um, in the um, Poetry's Enchantment essay, too. Um, the, the other topic, though, was, was um, you were hoping we would get back to having real criticism 
of poetry. And that, <laughs> that was, that was a, a, monumental, <laughs> a monumental failure, I have to say. Um, that has not happened. Um, and, and that's something that I've been, I've tried to do. I, I spent the last, how many, 16 years I've been at Rattle or 17 or something, trying to find a way to make like criticism work. And I can't, I've kind of given up. Um, we had, we published maybe a thousand reviews. We were publishing two reviews a week for a long time. And, um, maybe it's not a thousand, maybe 500, but, um, it was just so hard. They, all they felt like were extended blurbs and, um, and I couldn't get around that problem. Um, and I, so I tried to encourage people to, to speak on a more personal level, like what the, how the poems moved you and, um, in that way. And I, I tried various different things and I've never been able to find a way to make, reviews work and the thing is like like going back to the professionalization of poetry the problem is that nobody wants to criticize somebody who's like within their group you know and so there's this resistance to be honest about it and so you don't write a review unless you love the poetry or can say that you do anyway um and and so there ends up being no use for um for criticism um how do you think is there a way around that i mean i hate to say tim you and i agree on everything we never (laughs) we've never met before i mean it's uh, but great minds work alike. Um, <laughs> yes, so. If it, the two thing, two of the things that I hoped for there, better reviews and better anthologies have both failed. Um, anthologies are so. I mean, I the other night I just took up this old. It's about a fifty, sixty year old Oscar Williams anthology of major American poets, and I'm just I started reading it and I couldn't stop because it's just one good poem after the other. But I get these new anthologies and I can't find the good poem. Um, and so the problem is that's where you see the Academy killing things because people are afraid that if they say what they really think about something, somebody will get mad at them. Somebody will be on their grant committee, their promotion committee, somebody will. And so, uh, and the reason that the state of poetry reviewing has gotten worse is the older people who did it well have all died. <laughs> uh, I have stopped reviewing new books pretty much. Uh, and it was because when I was, you know, I used to get 12, you know, they sent me 30 poetry books. I'd choose the 10 that were interesting to write about. And I would give them, sometimes I would take a book and I give it a bad review, but it was a book that interested me. And I talk about what interested me in it. Um, and the funny thing is that almost immediately when I began publishing poetry criticism, people began following me. And it was because people want an honest voice. And I, uh, and so right now, insofar as I can tell, we only have one poet in the, in the United States who gives negative poetry reviews. It's William Logan who gives, you know, and he gives so many negative reviews at, at some point where I think it's almost, it's almost a burden on him. Uh, so, so it's a shame because, you know, we lack candid criticism, but the anthologies is even, you know, more worrisome. People put in all the, put in everybody. You know, here are the 156 major poets of Elko, Nevada, you know. Uh, you know, Elko, actually, since you got cowboys there, let's say Reno, Nevada. And it's not a useful book. An anthology should, you know, guide people. And, and there's some anthologies that I have that I, every poem in them, I think, is worth reading. I mean, I may like some more than others, but they're all worth reading. And there's other anthologies in which there's not a single poem that I've been able to find that's any good. And it's published as validation as you know professional validation mm-hmm. so it's 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 sad well i think um, it's it's not just the professionalness either but um like talking we've already talked a little bit on the in the chat windows people have brought up amanda gorman the um the poet uh, the 
the National Youth Poet Laureate who read the inauguration. Yeah. And I don't know if you're on social media at all, but my social media was full of these debates about that poem. And anybody who had any criticism of it was just hounded for having a negative opinion. And um, so, so it sort of plays out everywhere. It's not just in like yeah. the, the academic world. It's like we're... I just think if poets aren't allowed to have an opinion about poems, then what the hell is the point of poetry? Well, do you do you have a copy of my new book, Studying with Miss Bishop? I don't actually know. Okay, um, there's, I published a, a book. Uh, maybe I'll run, run and just show it on the screen. But I published a book, and it's it's called Studying with Miss Bishop: Memoirs from a Young Writer's Life. And I talk about becoming a poet, and I take six people who were. Uh, represent episodes that were very important to me and all the people are helpful except for one and it's james dickey and and i just mentioned this because it's it's emblematic of what we're talking about i gave james dickey a bad review now the funny thing is i wrote it as part of a longer piece for the hudson review and my piece was over over long so frederick borgen said why don't you just take this one out so naturally interestingly he took the negative one out and then joyce carol oates uh, and Ray Smith had kept asking me to give, you know, poems for Ontario rev- reviews for Ontario reviews. So I sent it to them, and they re- sent it back immediately, saying, uh, "We have no room for reviews." And this is from somebody who had solicited, you know, several times. So they clearly didn't want to do it. And I discovered every all these places that had asked me for reviews did not want to publish a negative review of a truly monumentally bad book by a super famous poet. I mean, if you can't. Uh, you know, if you can't give, I don't know who, you know, Madonna a bad review because you think, she, you know, who could, you know, mm-hmm. you can't, you know. So anyway, so finally it appeared in a magazine called Nebo, which probably had a circulation of 100, 200. It was a little magazine in Arkansas. And so uh, needless to say, about seven or eight years later, I found myself in a room with with a drunken James Dickey who assaulted me because he had read this review, you know, <laughs> and it was pathetic. I mean, cause he would kept, you know, attacking me and I kept trying to disengage him and he would follow me around the room screaming at me. Uh, and that's what happens when you give people negative reviews. They, uh, they get mad at you. They take revenge. I've discovered there's a couple of very famous poets that I was reviewing bunches of books and I give, and I would take their book and I would sort of say, the book's not very good, but let me talk about it in the best possible light. I give them a mixed review. Mm-hmm. They hate me. That was, yeah. they consider that tantamount to a hatchet job. So, you know, it's <laughs> thankless. And I've given people I know, people I like bad reviews, because if I'm going to review the book, I have to be honest. You know, otherwise I feel I've, I've uh, compromised myself as a critic. But, you know, it gets to a point where it's like, you know, it's not worth it. I'd rather at this point in my career, because I'm an, I'm an old man, uh, I'm just going to write long, long, interesting pieces about stuff. And I can, you know, say good and bad things in the, in the context of that. But I'm an essayist now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's a, I, great, it's a great lack for the, for the culture. Yeah. And I don't I just don't know how to fix it. I mean, we really I think as poets, we need to develop thicker skin, but I don't know how to. How to make that happen? Um, yeah, I mean, I have a for every story you have, I have a similar one too. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I used to I, for a while I tried to write little reviews on Goodreads because I had so many books. I thought I'd write reviews and just be honest for a paragraph, and wow, that yeah. did not go well. Um, well let's. Um, well, you know, it's it's. I mean, it's important. When early in my career, when I wrote very long, careful, dissenting opinions on some major writers, and it. Uh, had a, a tangible impact, you know, uh, but you know, it's, you, you've got to be, you have to have a thick skin and you have to be willing to have people hate you for, 
you know, for tr- doing an honest job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's a good a good lesson for everybody. Let's um, let's do another poem, and then I'll get to some questions from the audience because there's a there's a bunch here, and we haven't haven't gotten to any yet. Okay, this um, here's a poem. You know, I, I thought it'd be fun to read a poem I, I just never read. It's very short. It's called. This is once again a song-like poem, and it's a poem which I think um, doesn't make any sense, uh, but it makes sense if you hear it. You know, so it's music. It makes the sense of a song. It's called "The Heart of the Matter." The heart of the matter, the ghost of a chance, a tremor, a fever, an ache in the chest, the moth and the candle beginning their dance. A cool white sheet on which nothing will rest. Come, sit beside me. I've waited alone. But you need to confess, I already know. The scent of your shame is a heavy cologne that lingers for hours after you go. The dregs of the bottle, the end of the line, the laggard, the loser, the last one to know, the unfinished book, the dead-end sign, and last year's garden buried in snow. Uh, and so, you know, it's just, and it's about, it's a poem, you, it has to rhyme. If you didn't rhyme, it wouldn't work. You know, but it's really about trying to set, you know, links between those things. Anyway, yeah, you was, asked for another poem, and yeah, that was it. An, another excellent poem. On, on the topic of criticism, there are a lot of interesting comments. People, uh, Lester Graves Lennon is here. He says, let's not forget the pushback Wanda Coleman got for her negative honest review of Maya Angelou. Um, a lot of people are agreeing um, with what we do. So we have to, let's make a movement to actually ha- express our opinions openly. Well, you, and, you know, the and... only person I saw make, you know, really public negative comments was Ishmael Reed. Hmm. And, and Reed was very, you know, I, I thought we had very good points, but he, I guess he took a lot of heat for that too. Yeah, so. And I guess I should say that you know, there's, a, there's a thing, there's sort of, I always feel like there's an objective aspect of poetry and then a subjective too and we sort of mix those and get them confused which is maybe you know so if, if a poem isn't working for me that doesn't mean it won't work for someone else um so there's there's that a- angle of it too um but but let's go to some questions from the audience so there's some interesting ones that i wouldn't have have thought no, of. no i um, can't i can't see them so that's okay no yeah i'm just going to pass them along perfect, so perfect. yeah so um where was this um um gail Hemmen asked if you could speak a little about ghost meter, which is not a phrase I've heard of. So I'm curious to see what, what is ghost meter? What's the, it's, this is a term that T.S. Eliot used, which is, it's, that has, that his, Timothy Steele, if anybody who, you know, lives in, in L.A., um, is retired. He used to teach at uh, Cal State Los Angeles. You know, he's written a really interesting book about this, but the, Think of, of meter in this way. You've got strict meter, you know, shall I compare thee to a summer's day thou art more lovely and more temperate. You've got free verse, you know, I have, you know, but in between there is a thing that in the early 20th century they called ver libra. Now ver libra translates to free verse, but it actually comes out of a European tradition in Italian and uh, French. I think it also exists in Spanish, but I'm not knowledgeable about that. In which they would they would vary the length of the line. It was kind of like a, it was metrical, but it would sort of play around with it. You, you know, your length was free. And in the early 20th century, in English, 
a couple of poets, T.S. Eliot being the most famous, began to write a kind of free verse that was just one step away from blank verse. So if you think about this, you, you've got on this side metrical verse, this side free verse, and it's how close can you get it? Because you and so it's a it's a game because you don't want it to sound like bad meter, uh, but you also want to beat. So I've been fascinated with this for years because there's been poems I've working on and they don't work as meter and they don't work as free verse. But if you can get that kind of that ghost of a rhythm underneath it, uh, then it gives you a chance to write free verse with a beat. And that's what the Psalm of the Heights was written in a ghost of a meter. Uh, yeah. Okay. Blank verse, iambic pentameter is underneath those lines, even though mo- very few of them are in that. Yeah. So I love ghost meter and, and slant rhyme too, and sort of just you know edging on it, but then but then not not doing it yeah. all the way. The other uh, thing I really like, and people should look at this, is is stress meter. Stress. Don't count syllables. Count stresses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Strong stresses. You know that's what that's how pop songs are written. That's how ballads are written. That's how blues are written. You know, so why not write quote unquote art poetry that way? Mm-hmm. But suddenly you do that, you can, you can get a good beat going without locking yourself into a syllable count. Yeah. Um, um, going back to the question of um, um, criticism, uh, Steve McCoy over on Facebook asks if the issue of criticism could be the direction of popularized ideas about poetry, um, such as the ideas in the Dead Poet Society of poetry being uncriticizable self-expression. And that's, that, that touches on something I wanted to ask about, too. Um, you know, you, you champion so much developing um, poetry as something, you know, readers for poetry. Um, and, and having you know, students learn it the right way so they can recite it and love it and, and sort of fall in love with it first. Do you think that, because um, that's one thing maybe we differ, I'm not sure if we do, but my opinion has always been um, that really since, since poem, poetry is about meaning making, um, and, and I, I think what happens, I always think of things in terms of like niches and evolution and, and where, where things are useful. And um, I feel like the, the issue with poetry is that everybody who reads poetry and falls in love with it wants to become a writer. And, and I think so we have this sort of Ouroboros going on where every producer is a consumer and you can't really have an audience in that situation because every person who's selling something is buying something. And it's a, um, a sort of cycle like that. Um, do, do you think that, um, that, that everybody should be a poet? And that's something that we should pursue. Uh, yes, you know? and, yes and no. I used to feel exactly the way you do now. I'm not sure how I feel now. You know, uh, uh, I guess Ringo Starr would say, "With my hands, usually." Uh, the, <laughs> but here, here's my the insight I have is: if you go back to Renaissance Europe, anybody with an education could write a poem, and they did. Uh, if you look at in 19th century America, you, you look at these commonplace books. People, you know, care. People would come into each other's homes and they would write po- little verses. That they wrote. Now you can say that this is essentially a recipe for bad poetry, but the act—if you make a bad table, you'll appreciate fine furniture mm-hmm. more because you sort of you understand what's going on. So I think that to a certain degree, a healthy culture has people participate in the arts. So you know, everybody should sing. 
Everybody should be able to sketch a little bit. Everybody should be able to write a poem. Everybody should be able to tell a story, not necessarily write a novel, but, you know, tell a story and, and learn something about the artistry of those things. And it, it bespeaks a high level of culture. The problem is that when people don't recognize the difference between the degrees of participation in art, I mean, if you have a journal and every day you just journal notion, you know, notions in this, and you don't show it to anybody your whole life, and you yourself never reread it once, except maybe once in old age, uh, is it worthwhile? I'd say, yeah, because it probably made you more intensely alert to your own existence. And that one time that you read it, you'll say, oh, wow, I'd forgotten all these things about myself. Mm-hmm. And then there's, my mother used to write, and I actually have a book here somewhere. Every Christmas, my mother would write a poem insulting all the members of the family. You know, she'd take us one by one and skewer us, you know, and, uh, and it was funny. It was, you know, I mean, you know, she was just, she was a feisty woman that was not going to give an inch to anyone and this, and, you know, and she liked poetry. She had no education. Now, if you, if you read them outside the family, I don't think they make any sense, but inside the family, it was an enhancement, uh, to our, our, our family relations. So you've got that private poet, you've got the personal poet, but then the trouble becomes when you decide that you're going to read them in public to an audience of strangers. And if you do that, I think you have to be better than a lot of people are that do this. You have to take into account that not everything that's meaningful to, to, to you about yourself or, you know, not everything that's, that my, you know, uh, it's meaningful when your spouse does it or your sister or your best friend does it is meaningful to a stranger. And you have to take the same way. If you want to then take that poem and print it on a page and publish it to be read by strangers, you've got to be, be even better because you got to have to know exactly how to transcribe your voice onto a page. So I think the problem is not so much that people are writing it, but it's an insufficient appreciation of the degrees of artistry that are mm-hmm. required to go to each next step. Yeah, I always use the metaphor. I, you know, I'm a sports kind of guy. I played baseball and, and I play tennis and softball now. And I would just love poetry to be a lot more like sports. You know, if you go to a stadium, you know, if you look at a baseball stadium, there's 40,000 people there. Most of them played baseball when they were young. Um, and they, you know, weren't as talented maybe, or, or just moved on to other things. Yeah. And, it, and there's a, this whole, um, you know, difficulty climbing up and trying to be more and more professional. Like I've flamed out in college. Um, but, but you sort of, but you have so much more of an appreciation for baseball yeah. and for, for the spin they're putting on the ball, you know, and, and for how hard it is what they're doing if, if you've played it yourself. And, yeah. um, and so there's just this vibrant community and that's where the, the vibrance of sports fandom comes from is from people playing it themselves and then being amazed at what these professional athletes can do. And, uh, and I think maybe the difference is that there's, there's less, it's, it's more qualitative. So there's not a quantitative, like if I try to, to hit against, um, um, you know, I don't know who, who's a good pitcher right now, but he would strike me out immediately. And, yeah. uh, and it would be like pathetic. And, and I, you know, and I know that, and I can't not know that. And, and maybe that's the issue is that there's just no way to, to measure. And maybe that's the reason why we need criticism too, or, or I don't know. Yeah. Well, it is. But I mean, if you, if you think about this, if you're in a culture where you've got lots and lots of bad poetry being published and read aloud and everything else, somebody looks at that and says, I can do that. Uh, and that's good in some ways because it invites them in, but it also, it sets their standards low. See, I, I've tried not to teach creative writing um, 
not because I don't think you can teach creative writing, not because I don't think you know that there's some value, but I worry about myself as a writer if I start comparing my work to my to students' work. I should be comparing my work to Milton, to Rilke, you know, to Yeats, and that those are models that will rise. And I think there's a kind of complacency you get if you're surrounded by bad art, and I think we have that in our culture. But um, but let me say something because I. I I really believe this. We're in a good time to be a poet. I mean, you know, it's just a great time to be a poet. There's so many presses. There's so many reading series. There's so many magazines. I mean, I have readers all over the world. It astonishes me. I get letters almost every day from strangers. You know, and I, I, I'm, you know, do I, I, of course I believe I deserve this and so much more, Tim, so much more. <laughs> but, you know, it surprises me. I mean, I see, you know, how the heck did you... You know, come up with my, you know, find my poems in, in uh, Hongzhou, China or, you know, Singapore or whatever. And so it's a good time because, you know, the, 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 that electronic culture that weighs on us in some ways also facilitates communication. I mean, I did a, a poetry seminar in Münster, Germany this morning, and I was introduced by a Romanian in Bucharest. You know, <laughs> so it's, it's a, you know, there's some nice things about what's happening. But I do think that we have to take pride in our – we have to love our art more than we love you know, love ourselves as an artist. Yeah. Um, let, let's do one more question and then from the audience and then one more poem because we're kind of past the time. I, I promised you you'd be done. Um, but let's see. Connie, Connie Post over on Facebook. Connie, uh, hello. And by the way, you know, uh, Leonard, hello. Lester, hello. You know, all these people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's like 100 people probably watching right now live and then more will watch later. Um so um, the question um, from Connie is, do you read and recite poetry every day? And do you feel empty when you don't? You know, I hate to say it, but yeah, I probably do. Um, I know lots of poems by heart. And I love to, you know, to say them to my, just in the middle of like, you know, I'll go outside clearing brush, you know, I'll be, pruning trees i'll be taking a walk and you know and i, I they give me a jolt of pleasure and, and illumination or something will happen and and uh the, you know i'm reminded of them and so they they come to mind so the answer is yeah uh probably i don't probably read as much poetry as i did when i was younger i mean i mean the other night i got this oscar williams anthology and i spent an hour and i just I just couldn't believe how one, I was just reading through Edwin Arlington Robinson. Then I went into Emily Dickinson, you know, and I was just, it was just like eating a box of candy. Uh, and, but I think a, a part of the problem is I, I get lots of books that are not so good, you know, in the mail or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You know, let me, I want to praise Connie post as long as I'm here. I met Connie when I was California poet laureate and she exemplifies these poets in a community that, uh, that make opportunities for other poets to read, that support things. And, you know, they're, you know, really the, I mean, if we can, if Connie, I, I don't, I hope this, in, this metaphor doesn't insult you, the foot soldiers of the art. And, uh, we're so lucky in California and I think all over the country to have these people that have taken responsibility for organizing things at a community level. Yeah. I think so many people watching now do that, which, which is just an amazing thing. So yeah, thank you to, to everybody out there. Um, I mean, who would have thought you could walk across the continental United States and probably at, attend a poetry group or a poetry reading every night? Yeah, yeah, you definitely could. I, I used to do a thing on, on Twitter where if we had a subscriber from a town 
that we never had a subscriber before, I would tweet it. And it became so rare that I kind of forgot to do it. Like there's every place has poets. It's just amazing. Um, um, Let me ask. I know I said last question, but one more quick one. Uh, Wendy Vidalock is going to be the guest in a couple of weeks uh, or next month. Uh, Wendy says um, she enjoyed studying with Miss Bishop, the book, which um, I meant to talk about more, but there's time is uh, time. But um, can you talk about the dangers of the writing workshop paradigm? Something we kind of talked about a little bit, but. um, Well, here's. I've had a conversation 200 times, you know, a thousand times, maybe, I don't know how many times beyond numbering and, uh, where somebody will, will, you know, there'll be a bright student who wants to be a poet and they'll say, well, you know, I'm graduating. So I'm going to apply to a writing, you know, a writing workshop. I'm going to apply for an MFA program. And I go, don't do it. Uh, now do it maybe in five years, but you need to go off. I said, you know, go off to Italy, fall in love, have your heart broken, uh, you know, try to climb a mountain and break your leg and, and have all of these things which make you understand who you are under all these circumstances, read and write so that by the time you come and do a writing workshop, you have a very deep sense of your own character, your own personality, your own taste. Because what happens is people say, well, I'm going to go there and they're going to tell me what to read and how to write and do this, that, or the other. And they will. You develop a kind of consensus style. You know, and, and when I was uh, editing the Best American Poems of 2018, and I, you know, and I read, you know, I don't know, 13,000 poems, you start to see there's like three or four styles that most of them are written in. And so I think that a really good poet like Wendy Vidalock, who's terrific. She's just not like anybody else. I mean, she's truly abnormal. You know, I mean, she's got this kind of a sensibility, an ear, uh, a wit that's entirely her own. And I think most people have a strong, you know, most people who are drawn to poetry have a strong sense of individuality and they need to nurture that before they go into a group situation where the group dynamics may overwhelm their independence. Yeah, that's great. Great advice. Um, well, do you want to finish up with one last poem, whatever you'd like to share? Yeah, let me see. this is another poem, if I can find it. I thought I had it here, but maybe, yeah. This is another poem I never I never read, but I like. I don't think anybody else likes it, but, you know, if you can't indulge a poet once, you know, you're not a very generous audience, I have to say. Uh, it's, um, it's, it's a love poem, and it's called An Old Story. And I, I just wanted a poem where I could just let let the images go where they wanted to go. Our story is an old story, a tale of two who met in our feverish, infallible youth and woke transfigured in a world made new. We walked through gardens of such stark perfume that merely breathing left us drunk for days. We rolled in brambles with our skin unbruised. We shined in sunlight and in moonlight glowed as radiant as angels drawn by Blake. How could such fiery brightness not explode? The aspens shimmered in each blade-like leaf, slashed at the slopes until the freshets bled. The mountains were not larger than our grief. I don't know why I tell myself this story, except that it is spring again outside, and bent oaks briefly blossom into glory. Oh yes, it was a story beyond telling, 
And so it had to end, as the legend requires, in blood and tears and fires, the grim fates smiling. We had our years of ecstasy and rage, and then moved back to other tamer tales. But my hand still burns when I touch this page. Excellent. Dana Joya, thanks so much for being a guest tonight. This was a blast, uh, as I knew it would be. Uh, thanks to everybody who's who's watching and sharing. I'm enjoying the commentary, too. Um, Dana, thanks so much, and, and you're welcome to come well, back been, anytime. It's been a pleasure. And yeah. so, you know, uh, hello to the many people I didn't have a chance to talk to, you know. And, and you know, if you, if you have an urgent question, I'm sure Tim can pass it on to me. <laughs> yeah, so. definitely. Well, thanks so much, Dana. Uh, always okay. a pleasure. Talk to you soon. Good night. Good night. That was Dana Gioia. Um, as you mentioned, his most recent book of poems is right here. This is, um, oops, let me uh, drop that. Dana Gioia, New and Select, or 99 Poems, New and Selected. You can find more uh, of Dana Gioia at his website, Dana Gioia, just like it's spelled on the screen, D-A-N-A-G-I-O-I-A.com. Also, try to read this, this um, essay. There's this little pamphlet that um, was published by Wise Blood Books at wisebloodbooks.com, uh, where this essay, Poetry is Enchantment, um, appears. I'm not sure if it's online somewhere. You can find it too. But, um, but I, it's a wonderful reading for today. I really enjoyed that and enjoyed a whole bunch of these poems in, uh, in 99 Poems, New and Selected, which came out a few years ago from uh, Grey Wolf Press. It's Dana Joya on the back. And once again, find him at danajoya.com. Um, now we are going to take a little brief intermission, maybe a minute. We'll do the open lines. Um, how the open lines work, of course. Let me uh, put this on screen for everybody. Um, all you have to do is uh, first email me if it's your own poem to openmike at rattle.com. Email me the poem you'd like to share, and um, and uh, then we can show it on screen as you read. The prompt for this week was to write an alphabet poem. That's a type of acrostic poem in which the first letter of each line spells out the alphabet. If you're up for more of a challenge, write a double acrostic alphabet poem where the last letter of each line also spells out the alphabet in reverse order like a double acrostic. So if you did that, um, please, please uh, send it to openmike at rattle.com right now. And then give me a call, 818-850-7727. Let it ring a couple times and hang up. Or uh, send me a chat message over Skype to rattle poetry, all one word. Just say hi there, and uh, I'll call, either way, I'll call you back when the time is right. And um, I'd like to open this up, like I was saying, to um, more of an open lines than an open mic. If you'd like to share anything, um, I think it'd be great um, reading both of Dana's two essays again. Um, they're just so seminal. Poetry's Enchantment and um, Can Poetry Matter? One of the things he wants poets to do more of, and I agree thinking about it, is that we should read poems that we love by other people. So if you would like to call in just to read a poem that you love, um, if, you, if you get a new book and you find something you love any week and would like to just read it, um, feel free to call up and just read that. That would be wonderful. And uh, it would advertise books for poets and uh, share things that we love. And that would be great. So um, please do that. Now I'm going to take a quick break. I'll put up the, um, the little view on the screen of next week's guest. And uh, next week's guest is going to be Russell Brakefield. He has a book, Field Recordings. I really don't know much about um, Russell. Uh, he, we published a poem of his uh, on uh, Poets Respond maybe two months ago. Um, 
and I just saw this book which seemed really interesting. He appeared on Poetry Spawn Live and seemed like a cool guy who would make a good guest. He was very fun and comfortable on camera. And um, field recording sounds really interesting. This is a book about um, the Michigan music scene and um, the sort of the history of that, which is something I know nothing about, which sounds fascinating. So that's field recordings next week, Rattlecast number 78 with Russell Brakefield, um, Tuesday, February 2nd. And uh, looking forward to that. And I'm going to stand up and stretch my legs, uh, refresh your drink if you have to. I'll be back in like 30 seconds. Okay. back thanks so much for your patience and that let me stand up and, and move around a little bit um so so as i mentioned the warm-up or not the warm-up poem the uh prompt poem was to write in uh, um an alphabet poem and uh megan and i both um <laughs> well megan did a much better job than me but um where let me see i gotta find it first this was my alphabet poem, and I, uh, mine is almost a found poem. I uh, used, remember we used the word, um, the random word generator for a poem a while ago, and I used a random word generator. So my, my style, my strategy here was this. I looked up a word that starts with, with A, and then it, it ends with a Z, and um, hit the old random word generator button. I let, I let it have five choices, and I had to pick one of the five choices every time. And I tried to make this a poem that um, worked as a story. And it was actually a really fun exercise. So this is sort of half found. I mean, it went where it went. And I didn't really have, I had 20% choice each time I could pick one of five words that I needed. So this is my poem. I'm going to have to, uh, there we go. This is The Art of the Buzz. And the title too came from that, um, that exercise. The Art of the Buzz. Arthur loved jazz, but also was shy. Couldn't play the sax, didn't know how to blow. Even worse was his improv, for he was a fly. His guru grew from an honest heap of grass. Instruction was tender, joking always about the one fact. Knowledge being hardship, light as an ego motioning the moon. No one, he'd say, has a problem obscuring an owl pinned to the monk, quarreling with a carton of OJ, real as a hailed taxi. So sour the crash through the long uncertainty of a grief vague as virtue. Why can't we understand zerographically the quixotic yes, or at least absorb zero the drama? So that is my art of the buzz, and that would be, I tried to make it art of the buzz, so see what, what came out of that. And uh, this is Megan's poem, After the Waltz. After the waltz, but before the brandy, came the sax, deep notes like an undertow ending our improv. For a moment, you glimpsed what was next, hips opening, low bass. I saw something darker, Jack Daniels, husband in Iraq, kids crying, this trap lust tricks us into. Maybe I ran, not knowing a chasm opened under me, fell past all this, the clock quietly ticking, the DJ replaying you and I. Sometimes death takes you dancing up on the roof, vowing love and time. We never had x-ray vision, magic. You came to a nightclub, 
zeroed in in coda. And that is Megan's poem, After the Waltz, for the prompt this week. Uh, let's see what you have to share with us. Um, with a whole bunch of people um, who were interested in sharing poems. Um, let us see who we should do. I'll try to find... Okay. Let's call up... I know Nivedita's here. Let's call up Nivedita Karthik. Oh, I should make sure to do the people we missed on Sunday, too. So I'll make sure to do that. So so what do you have for us? And, and how are you doing tonight, first of all? Um, or this morning for you? I'm doing great, thank you. As usual. <laughs> um, and what did you do? Did you do a um, an acrostic? Yep, I did one of both. I did a double and a single. Because <laughs> I started with my double and I was like, <laughs> and go for a single, so I have both basically. And it took me 25 minutes to write both, so I don't know how good it's going to be actually. <laughs> Excellent. Well, let's go. Let's hear it right now. Friends Forever, a double acrostic. Go ahead, I'll put it up. Thank you. Friends Forever, a double acrostic. A beautiful drink made of rose quartz, broken and mangled now, yet twinkling onto the blue sky, catches Marjorie's eye by the abandoned red post box. Dainty once long ago, yet ephemeral as a sparkling moon bow. Excitement seems to have faded now, hasn't it, love? Frowning, sighing, glancing at his timepiece, straightening his accrued gilet, and looking heavenward, praying for a hint, Hamish hastily nods. Ascent? Descent? Who knows? Who cares? Intrigued, impatient, and at the end of a patient's tether, jokily, March picks up the ring. Initials S and Q. Know anyone with a Q? Hamish's shoulders slump. Long day, lonely path in the woods, no respite, breakfast was eons ago. In the middle of this untrodden path, now a new acquisition? Neither worthy of time nor effort, this now worthless gem overtakes an otherwise lovely morning stroll. Perhaps Q is for Kate. No, wait, that's a K. Quentin, that's it. It's got to be, exclaims Marge. Resigned to his fate by now, Hamish nods to his monami. Sarah could be her, a surprise offer from Hamish. That's it then, the end. Story time's done with the pocketing of this ring. Under the blue sky, the friends stroll on, engaged in thoughts of what if, wasting my dreams will make them shatter and explode. Walking onward to the noisy squawks of an angered scene, to would-be amours in complete inner panic, yearn for what they didn't have the courage to grab. Zigzagging forever around love, not yet ready for the final huzzah. Excellent. That I don't know how you did that. <laughs> that is so hard to do. <laughs> okay, do you want to do, do you want to do the other one? Too? Um, do you want me to read that too? Yeah, or? yeah, why don't you go ahead? It's not too long. Sure. The choice is yours. At night, when all is quiet, barefoot at the beach, the waves lapping my feet create meandering patterns eerily similar to those dreams I once had, wished strove to turn to reality, ever in motion, never ceasing its thoughts that flit from A to X and A to N, my mind gallops onwards, on and on, too fast for my heart to match, to catch. It's no time to make the choice, join in or forever be left out. Know the feeling? Lonely though the path I choose, magic of life forever, my friend, will never let go of my hand. Onwards I wander along the shore, pondering now about the choice I made. Quiet yet commanding, my mind says, right or wrong, the choice is made. 
shouldering the weight of my impetuous decision, I trudge through sand back to shore slowly until my brain and heart become one voice inside me. You are right no matter what you choose. Go through with it. Xylophone strum a victory march inside me as I yield to the supreme intuition that lives inside me, just resisting the urge to yell, Zenith, here I come. Excellent. Thanks so much. Nivedi Dekarthik, thanks for sharing both those. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Always a pleasure talking to you. Have a nice evening. You too. Bye. Okay, let's see. Um, we, I think Paul Ruth here. Uh, we didn't get to Paul on Sunday. Let's make sure we get to Paul today. Hello. Hey, Paul, how you doing? I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm doing great. So what do you have for us? So I have a poem from last Sunday. So this is um, about the news. And the poem I wrote in the, the news feature is obviously President, uh, President Biden is signing a bunch of executive orders, and as presidents do, um, early on. And one of them had to do with extending food stamps, um, which, of course, I agree with. And as a teacher, I, I see these problems all the time. And, you know, I also want to say before I read the poem that I know it's, it's an international viewership and that, you know, childhood hunger is a worldwide problem. Um, but there's an interesting irony that happens in the United States with so, with so much wealth that's here and so many social programs. Um, and that's kind of what my poem is about. It's short, but we'll see. Hopefully I get some criticism in the chat. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks. Is it, this is as old as bread, right? I got the right one up? Uh, no, this nope. is this is upon, um, although that one's a decent one too, but um, upon President Biden extending food stamps. Ah, uh, Okay. Let me uh, let me find it. You submitted it through Submittable. Yeah, it would it would have been uh, just last Sunday's okay. poet's response. Yeah, no problem. It should be one second. I thought I uh, I thought I had the right poem up, so I wasn't looking for anything yeah. else. <laughs> the bread sounded like it would have been would have fit. Um, it's on. similar. <laughs> come on, Submittable. Think. Okay, there we go. Upon President Biden extending food stamps. Okay, here we go. It's yeah. ready. All right. Thank you. All right. Uh, upon President Biden extending food stamps. Waiting. A classroom and pandemic disinfected welcomes the hungry. Desk in rows, space, steady. Lesson on the board, but there's no need greater for a child's hunger than knowing the only truth worth keeping silent. But the lunch is free. Excellent. Thanks for sharing that. You're welcome. Yeah. Upon President Biden extending food stamps by Paul Ruth. Thanks, Paul. You're welcome. Bye. Bye. Yes, yeah, our school district just now serves meals for you know breakfast and and free lunch too, which is a really good thing. It's it's sad that it's important, but it really is. Um, let's see who is next. Let's call up Susan Talley. I don't think we talked to Susan on Sunday. We'll see what Susan has for us. Wind. You know, from the alphabet poem, I'm looking at the first words of each line in my poem, and it's just so horrible. <laughs> and hearing the talk tonight about horrible poetry, <laughs> but it relates to the saxophone, so that's why I'm reading it. Excellent. Well, anything you want to read is great. And, uh, and don't okay. call it horrible poetry, though. I, I object. No. <laughs> okay. It's um, called wind. Okay, let me put it up. It's kind of, let me put it into a word doc really quick. There we 
go. Okay. Thank you. It's three long blocks west and another ten to the gig at the Carlisle. He's got a bad mood over him. An older woman jumps out in front. The wind nips at her nylons and races through her hairdo as she rounds the corner where February and March collide. He's watching. The wind licks her ears and steals her shopping list upward. He could be that blustery boy messing her bouffant. Around her ear, a silver wave settles, some crescent or shell. She can wait for the echo, but he has no time to retrieve lost lists. He must begin his improvisation, imitations of intentions. He took up the horn at the age of ten. As the words reform on her lips, root beer, whipped cream, vacuum-packed walnuts, he's getting the beat. The cold air of his trousers is like walking backward. Root beer, whipped cream, vacuum-packed walnuts, he can take it from there all the way to the Carlisle. Oh, that was excellent. I love that. Wind. By, uh, Thank you. Yes, yeah, Susan Talley. Thanks so much. That, that was great. Thank you. Yep, bye. Good night. Yeah, I love that. The great there's great rhythm and uh, and storytelling in that voice. Um, let's see. Let me read Carlton Johnson's uh, alphabet poem right now. And um, as I'm getting that prepared, well, I'll just take a second. This is Carlton Johnson with a double alphabet poem. And uh, here. It is. Let me get the text a little bigger. Here we go. Okay. Here comes uh, Carlton Johnson's poem. Finding America. America, America, I wander your midst-laden walkways, your cities sipping cherry fizz. Better clean your hands before dinner. I hear as suddenly we are on our way. Clapboard houses, the old foal in the barn, the gray old annex, darting between dreams of tomorrow and morning dew. Everyone gets what they deserve or not, as seen on TV, forgetting ourselves when we make wrong our a portmanteau, a portmanteau, gulping down freedom like a slow flow from a faucet. How can we ever live together without stresses? I have no idea, but grab an antique cane and begin to wander. Juniper groves and hollyhocks, perhaps, bought in a market or a souk. Know what time it is, America. I want to know what you are on the up and up. Let me in on that little, on a little secret that keeps this democratic engine going, this dynamo. Maybe it is the cherry blossoms in spring, or perhaps it's the way the sun never reaches the ground in those canyons of Fifth Avenue. Or maybe it's the loom, a day weaving the afternoon sun into a fabric seen once in a spell. Perhaps we never quiet to restless hearts and minds that spark quasi-stellar observations of a world ending in this speculative hajj. Reason rises and swells like the dreary, dreaded NUI. Sometimes the blues catch you smashing you with the green wash. Typhoons of mediocrity. And I turn eager as I pad the sidewalk like a dog, underfed, malnourished. I try to talk, but am aloof. Voices vanish and the words in my head float like so many a quote. 
What you need is to be clean with your hands and your word. Xerox your words and keep it handy without the, without in between a speck. Yet as I stand, a camel in my lips, it's become my job. Zealously, I continue my journey to find America. I love that that picked up at the end. Great poem there, Finding America by Carlton Johnson. Uh, let me call up, um, let's call up Richard Westheimer. See what Richard had for us today. Flies time like the alphabet, or the time when humans first numbered the stars. Hey, Richard, how are you doing tonight? Good. Good to see you. Yeah, great to uh, see you. Um, this is actually one that I hadn't uh, written for this week, but dug out of a file. It's a oh. reverse acrostic. Ah, so it goes back. I see. Yeah, zillions on zillions to start. Yeah. Do you so... do this do this acrostic thing often? No, no, no. I, um, one of my very early, so one of the things that resonated with me that you talked about today was sort of this loss of meaning of words that is promoting the resurgence of poetry. And that's my story. Mm. I really turned towards really studying poetry in earnest. Oh, November 9th, 2016. <laughs> so, Interesting. And it, it was not a conscious thing, but it was a, it was an emphatic change in how I felt about the world in terms of words. So hmm. well, that's well, one good thing that came of it, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah, I would trade it for everything. Although I love this community, um, so yes. And thank you so much for the interview today. One of the things that really resonated with me, I have a good friend who was poet laureate here in Cincinnati, whose uh, first language is Spanish. And when he reads in Spanish, people are just transfixed. Yeah. Nobody's looking at their books. Nobody's looking at the page. They're all looking at him. And when he reads in English, they're following along or on their phones or something. His poetry is wonderful in English, but mm -hmm. it's the music that attracts yeah. them. Yeah, there's just something enchanting. That's just such a great word about um, there's a power to it. It's amazing. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, sure. Flies time like the alphabet or the time when humans first numbered the stars. Zillions on zillions, I heard them keen, yet there are more as yet unseen. In Zeric heaven's boundless breadth, wrought by, not by hand, nor thought, nor breath, the void, a singularity unseen, until light's dust did intervene with tangled waves and rays set sail, spangled star-shone milky veil, revealed now just unto itself, quantum time and thought and wealth, passion born by every orb, newly lit and now turned toward the mystified, earth's new guests, lost in their wondrous bequest, knighted now with astral awe, just in time to heed the call inward now, the guests return, heeding more mundane concern, like gathering food and love and sleep, finding refuge from the deep, exhuming words from their minds, just born, discovering the pain to mourn, and now called again to look on high, believing in that brilliant sky, abiding what is and is not seen, zillions on zillions, I heard them keen. 
Oh, excellent. I love the, the meter and also that repetition there at the end. A great poem. Thanks, Richard. Uh, thanks, Tim. Appreciate it. Yep. Good night. Bye. Okay, let's see. Um, next up, we will do, um, let's call uh, Diana Knox, or Diane Knox hasn't been on in a while. Let's call Diane. Hey, Diane, did you want to share something? I did. <laughs> and what is it that you want uh, to share? Well, it's about uh, uh, our COVID vaccine in, in my little town, Squim. In Squim. And where is that Squim where? It's on the Olympic Peninsula. Uh, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm curious to hear about it. Let, let's hear it. Okay. It's COVID vac encampment. The generous Jamestown Sklalem tribe is forcing us to write poetry, making us line up before the shot ploy begins from nine to two. Some get to Cary Blake Park as early as 3.30 the afternoon before to sit in their vehicles and wait. These clever health conveyors beckon poets with a vaccination lure who then are forced to sit in their cars to write for hours upon hours. My car, a cozy creative cove, I fold down my Prius seats, make a retreat replete with down comforter in my suite, pencils and paper pads galore, keep me occupied before I'm sore. Some will chronicle this experience. Some will hope to write an Amanda Gorman-inspired gem. Some will write about the weight, some the uncomfortable seating. Some will reflect upon the many months they've anticipated the freedom in this serum. Some will refuse to write poetry. I wonder if they will be refused the shot. Thanks for that. It was uh, COVID vac encampment. So you had the shot. Congratulations on that. Yes. I just, just out of curiosity, uh, which one did you have and, and did you schedule a second? Uh, it's the Moderna. Mm -hmm. And uh, yes, I get my second on the 20th of uh, February. Mm -hmm. And so I'm free <laughs> on the 6th of March. <laughs> that, is, that is amazing. Well, congratulations. I, uh, we have All a right. long way to wait in our uh, in, in our part of the world but uh but well we have 15 percent complete here now oh that's great so. and then when you add the people who've already been exposed it's close you know it's not too far away from, oh well, it could be so good slowing it down a little bit yeah yeah that's great okay. well congratulations on that and thanks for sharing all right that. thank you bye-bye yep, that was diane knox uh, from swim washington with a covid poem i thought i would read this one really quick or maybe i can um i wonder if the audio is loud enough let me try it this is um, we talked a little about james dickey and it reminded me of this poem um, which we published in Rattle Number uh, 39. It was this tribute to Southern poets. It's not very long. It's, it's sort of a... I thought for a second I was thinking it was a sonnet, but it's not. But this is James Dickey died owing me a bar tab. And let me... Uh, if this isn't loud enough, I will, I will read it myself. But I think it's loud enough. Here we go. James Dickey died owing me a bar tab. James Dickey died owing me a bar tab. 
James Dickey died owing me a $70 bar tab I picked up for his vivid, drunken self and hammered protégés somewhere in I forget where goddamn South Carolina. No house booze for them. Strictly top shelf. I have alternately gloried in this and resented it for however many years, trying to decide whether a brush with fame, sweating and profane as it was then, was worth the tribute of a couple of beers. When I read The Heaven of Animals, though, the 90th time, I think it is all right. I think I should have bought him something further to take home, something to comfort him through the poem-haunted night. At the cycle center, prowl abroad such men. They fall, they are torn, they rise, they walk again. And that was, uh, once again, David Brendan Hope's uh, one of my that's one of my favorite titles is uh, D- James Dickey died owing me a bar tab for metal number uh, thirty nine, and uh, as everybody was talking about James Dickey and telling their James Dickey stories in the chat window, I was thinking about that poem and and trying to laugh. I, I love that title, and um, a good poem. Let's see who do we still have to go. Let's do Jennifer Gothier. Hey Tim. Hey Jennifer, Ray. and what do you have for us tonight? Well, I thought I would share my um, double acrostic that I did for this week. Excellent. Okay, let me put it up into a uh, little document really quick. And do you want anything about um, writing this? Is it the first time you've tried it? Yeah, uh, it's it is the first time I've tried it, and um, I really enjoyed doing it. Actually, it was a lot of fun to have the kind of um, the parameters that I had to go by. Um, and I will say that I think the hardest line for me was the. Let's see. Um, it was the H and the J, I think. <laughs> Let me see if I can. F- yeah, but I. But the reason it came about is because I thought of the ending, the line with Q, and I thought of the word shack, and then tried to make my poem around how I could incorporate shack into my poem. So, this is my alphabet acrostic on adolescence for my son Jack. Interesting. Okay, go ahead. After thirteen years of living with him, I notice on his lip some peach fuzz but he remains quiet about any changes that are happening in his body. Can I be the cool mom who doesn't approach everything with a fix? Doing so will take a lot of self-control and the ability to silence the wow. Each day, I wonder if his hormones are beginning to rev. Forget it, mom. I can't discuss this with you. Go to your dad, I say, if you have anything to ask about. He doesn't respond, just laughs. I return to my own cares, bodily changes as I get older. Just as I shrink, he is getting as tall as Shaq. Kids will grow up. Letting them is part of the parenting scenario. My mother raised me alone and probably wished for some help with the teen. Now at least I have his dad on my team. On a good day, we get along really well. Play cards, go for bike rides, take the dog for a walk quintessential family activities. Then other days, he acts like a Raj, rejecting rules, mercurial, refusing all food but macaroni. Seething with emotion, he seems childish. Tomorrow, he'll wake up singing. Underneath all the changes, he's still himself, vivacious, silly, and wildly creative, wise in ways we would never have imagined. Xenotypic, almost, in his grasp of the comic. Youth in the past, he greets age with aplomb, zealously pursuing his flight from juvenilia. 
Oh, that was excellent. I, I'm really impressed with all these uh, alphabet acrostic, the double ones. They're, they're so hard. How are you guys doing it? But you are. <laughs> good job. Thanks for sharing that. Thanks a lot, Tim. Have a good evening. Yep, you too. Okay, um, was that, let's see. We might, oh, Patricia Rockwood's here. Let's call it Patricia. We're sort of running low on time. Let me, um, Patricia, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Ah, hello. Um, okay, so what do you have for us? Um, I have the double acrostic, rose to the challenge. Excellent. Let's see. Um, um, let's see. Yeah. I have to, oh, here it is. Okay. I have video. No, we don't have your video yet. If you want to turn it on, go ahead. Okay. Let me try to manage this here. Um, share your screen. Okay. Well, if not, it, it's fine without it. Like Dana Joya likes to do. Here we go. Ah, okay. How's that? Perfect. Hello. Good That's... to see you. Hey, hi. <laughs> this is a boat ride on Dahl Lake. So I have to explain a couple of things. Um, Shabazz is a Kashmiri word that means come on or let's go. I think. I could be wrong about that. Um, and uh, in the last line, a shikara is a, is a Kashmiri boat that looks a little bit like a gondola. And they, they whiz around the lake on those things. And the tourist ones have a kind of a couch in the middle that the tourists ride in. And that's what I'm sitting on in the boat ride. And I kind of cheated a little bit because it was really hard to think of words that ended in Q. Yeah. So <laughs> that was that was really that was my worst one, I guess. But uh, so here goes. Okay. A boat ride on Dell Lake. Ahmed yells Shabazz before jamming his pole into the murky, caramel-colored mix. Dal Lake churns and waves froth at our prow, even as Ahmed, who, like Nureyev, feet balanced like a dancer on the narrow stern at home in his milieu, gyrates with his pole to skillfully guide our boat headlong into the lotus fields. I'm sitting wide-eyed, his passenger, joints coddled on a plush banquette, gently rocking, is its own trank. Knowing this, Ahmed slows to a crawl. I hear the gentle lap-lap of waves on the hull, gaze down into water the color of espresso, muse on how the perfect round lotus leaves but then nothing prepares me for the shell pink flower itself. I'm over the side, practically, aching to touch every luminous petal. Pure delight, I look and look. Queens may have their Taj. Royals have nothing on me as I savor this splendor. Each time it's new, the memories giving up their secrets of valor and grace. Wherever my feet tread, Zurich or Lush, this water music, yearning and deep, I will absorb. Zeitgeist nostalgia, a boat ride in Ahmed's Shikara. Excellent poem. I love that. Another journey of a poem, a boat ride on Dow Lake. Thanks so much for sharing that. And that was uh, Patricia Rockwood once again. Thanks, Patricia. Thanks. Good night. Good night. Okay. Um, well, we are pretty much running out of time here. Um, let's see. 
Um, so Danny Mask reminded me, and thanks, Danny, for this, that um, for reminding me, the deadline for the Ekfrastic Challenge is uh, January 31st this month. Of course, it's the last day of every month. And the artist for the Ekfrastic Challenge this month was none other than Danny Mask, who is here uh, very frequently on the Rattlecast and uh, Critiques of the Week and all that stuff. And uh, this was his uh, photograph that we used for the Ekfrastic Challenge. So Danny is going to be the uh, judge of the the one of the winners, the artist's choice. And uh, so maybe he wants bribes or something. Maybe that's why he wants me to mention it. Um, feel free. Well, actually, don't. Uh, but that is uh, Danny's photograph, uh, those ripples in the water bucket. Um, for those watching at home, a, a beautifully simplistic image. I really like this. I'm really curious to see what people write about. And, um, of course, you can go to rattle.com. And click on the Ekfrastic Challenge uh, page and find the uh, link to submit a poem about this painting. Now, um, the prompt for next week is going to be, let me pull that up. Um, we, we gave a very complicated one last week. This one's much simpler. It's just a, a, a narrative kind of prompt. The prompt for this week is... Write a poem about a tourist town during the off-season. So, um, you know, it's the off-season in a lot of places. It's not, not the off-season for us with the snow up here in the mountains, but uh, the off-season for us is the summer. But uh, the off-season for anything warm is right now in the Northern Hemisphere. And uh, so write a poem about a tourist town during the off-season. That is your prompt for this week. It's, a, it's very uh, open-ended as far as style. And just the subject matter is uh, bound and next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be, as I mentioned, Russell Brakefield. Um, his new book, Field Recordings, came out really recently. Um, it's, a, it's a book about um, the sort of f music um, folklore of the music industry. Um, a lot of history, and I think he called it ethnomusicology in this book, um, with the, the music scene in the uh, Michigan region about 100 years ago. And uh, it should be a fascinating book to look at. I'm really, I really haven't read it yet, but I'm looking forward to reading that. It's Russell Brakefield, Rattlecast number 78, Tuesday, February 9th, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. I will see you then. I'll also see you for uh, the Critique of the Week on Friday, of course. And make sure if you'd like to have a poem critique to uh, get into the drawing before we do the drawing on Friday. And also for Poetry Spawn Live on uh, Sunday, as always. Uh, see you then. Hope you have a good night. Bye.